was actually pretty easy. I just think <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, cool, okay, we've been recording for a little bit. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. Just just the last, like, two minutes or so. I delete that first. Sarah Leishman, thanks for coming on my show. Let me in your house. Yeah. Yeah, we're just in my dining room. Yeah, it's a nice dining room. Um, I appreciate you um, taking the time for me to barge in. I appreciate you. Yeah, right. Thank you. <laughs> uh, if you can, if anybody's listening, I don't know if anybody listens to this, but um, there's some noise in the background and it's Gord. Uh, it's Sarah's dog chewing on, a, on an antler. Like it's his job. Yeah. Because you're here. Yeah, but it's a dog that is your job. Well, I guess. He feels like when someone comes over, that's like his job is to prove how good he is at chewing the antler. Yeah. Because uh, Josh isn't here. He's just really working right now. Yeah. He's working hard. Well, good job, Gord. So if you hear this clunk, clunk kind of chewy noise, it's Gord crushing or bones. Or barking soon. He could be yeah. trying to protect us later. Right. Yeah. Um, can you keep the microphone close to you? Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Oh, um, I'm not, I just, I'm just trying to run a good show here. So yeah, that's, that's all. Um, yeah, so we're in Squamish today, and I haven't done a podcast in a while, um, and we've been trying to line it up for a little while to do one together, mm-hmm. so I appreciate the time to take. It's cool. Uh, and um, what are we going to talk about today? Do you have any ideas? Do you have you any? asked me that when you showed up, yeah, and I, I was like, you must have a list of questions. <laughs> You've got to be ready to go. I don't do that, but... Um, Clearly. <laughs> no, I usually start off with people I know, so I just ask them like questions about their life, what they're doing, because I think yeah. people are interested in just hearing what people are doing. Mm-hmm. But... Um, yeah, we were trying to get this get this together for a while, but uh, we've been friends for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Like, well, not a long, long time, but Well, six I feel years. like when did I meet you? I met you at like one of those deep winter parties when I was working for Whistler Black Home. Like, that was after I left, right? Yeah, obviously. Yeah, you yeah. were at Arcteryx and right. I was like new to Whistler Black Home and we, right. that's I think the first time we really ever had a conversation. Probably, yeah. yeah. I think that's maybe somebody, I think maybe somebody like Michelle introduced us or something like that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It was like one of those house parties they used to organize with all the photographers. Really? And that's like where it the was? Judges. The Deep Winter House? Yeah. Oh man, I used to probably mm-hmm. get too drunk to remember that. I, thought I was... just remember finding that whole experience awkward and you were like the only person who wasn't awkward there. No offense all... to anyone who was actually there. Well, if they're awkward people, they're awkward people. Well, but I just like the whole like, I don't know. It's the whole it setup. Weird. It's the whole media setup house where it's like the intent is to connect athletes and media and make everyone yeah. seem cool yeah and then makes then they make the brand seem cool that we've done this connection yeah which really it's a bunch of people who don't know each other very well so it becomes like a high school party where like the athletes know each other and the media know each other yeah and, and no I, one really talks i was like new to my job and i had a hard time like making friends i guess in that job right. at first and i remember just feeling like i don't know anyone here this is so weird and at least you would talk to me i made yeah. friends eventually but in the winter time it was like a lot it took a while to like get to know people well there's some people to know right yeah and like everybody the fun thing that i found interesting or kind of frustrating is that say there's like 50 people on the athlete team or just in the industry that you need to know they only need to know you mm. so you they're like hey i met you last week or like i forget because i met all of you at once. I'll see you like, but they met you, they, they all met you once, and they feel like I feel like it's easier for. This maybe doesn't even make sense, but I feel like it's easier for them to remember you because you're in this position of hey, we need to talk to Sarah on a regular basis to get things from Mister Black on these things, right? Yeah, I actually I never felt that anyone treated me that way. Oh. I was sort of like like maybe in the summer when I had the Crankworks relationship, right. and, and it's it is more that way now that I'm 
uh, at Arcteryx, but mm-hmm. being from Alberta, that was like the thing that was the most striking to me when I moved here is that no one remembered me ever. I'd have to, rem- I'd have to like meet them six times for them to remember my oh. name. I'd be like, yo, I remembered you the first day I met you. Oh yeah. Um, cause I think that's like an Alberta thing or maybe it's just that everybody from the coast, they're a bunch of assholes. I'm not really sure. It's, I've been here for 11 years and I, now I'm like part of the problem. I forget people every oh. time, but yeah. I remember when I first moved here being like, why, why can't you just remember me this? Like, how about, how about round seven? Um, yeah, yeah. I think I agree with you. I have a hard time. I, oh, hey, Gord. What's oh, up, Gord's buddy? coming over. He's on the move. Hey, I don't remember. Um, I, I forget names quite frequently. Like, uh, I meet so many people, especially when I first started in like in marketing or whatever in the industry, I was like, I would just forget names mm-hmm. right away. Like, cause I would like, I'd meet eight people and I'm like, okay, I got that guy and I got, that girl and I that thing that's all I got and then the rest like I'll, I'll see you again sometime mm-hmm. so I just thought it was like I didn't really feel like um you mentioned earlier like you're talking about like people just want to talk to you because you're the person of like that gets them things I was thinking more like just so many people you meet you just can't remember them all at once like mm-hmm. when you're at those house parties like those like organized media events those are just to prove to the company that you've done a media event like mm-hmm. I think it's like you're just doing it to check a box off hey we did this and we just did this media events that everybody can just meet I think that's like a, that's a total like PR guy way of looking at it. I don't actually <laughs> think that's like the intention of them, but it starts feeling like that's what they're about when you're at them so often. Yeah. And I don't know. Well, I mean, like I've done the athlete thing, so maybe it feels a little different as an athlete too. Right. I guess you have both sides, right? You're not just somebody there for me to, you've been on both sides where I'm like, Hey, this is Sarah. Talk to this media person. Yeah. Like right. I, in cycling, I always found them exciting cause it was like, a really good opportunity to see all my friends in one place because sure. I genuinely felt like I was a part of that community. Yeah. And in the winter, it's not like I'm not a winter person. I ski patrolled for enough time that mm-hmm. I should feel like that's like a part of where I'm from. And especially cause that's like how I was raised was on, on skis. But yeah. I just always felt like the winter things weren't fun. They felt like work, but maybe it's cause it was my job. Well, I it was know. work. Yeah. It's just a different scene. But you, They're both different. Yeah, because for mountain biking, for the most part, you would go into an event as an athlete. Yeah. So you'd be like, the, not the focus, but people like come, they'd be like, hey, you're here because you're representing our brand. And it's like, you were like the, the focus of what's going on. Yeah. But in the in the wintertime, you were the opposite, I feel like, right? Yeah, I yeah, totally. I think when you're like the hustler, it's more work you're like way. the person hustling, which is basically what an athlete has to do. Yeah, I would get more excited about that. So like Deep Summer was way more fun to me, even though I ran Deep Summer yeah. for a couple of years. I still found it more fun than Deep Winter, but I also didn't feel embedded in the Deep Winter scene. Like that was my right. job. Yeah, so sure. I did the same thing. It's I like, wasn't hustling. Yeah. yeah. I think as an athlete, you can just be kind of who you want. You go to an event, you're like, yeah, I'm an athlete. And like, you just, it shouldn't just be athletes, but they walk in, you have a, you have a different set of... Um, your agenda is different. Mm. You had to like meet people and just make connections where people on the media side or the people who, who make the house, who make these media events, they have like criteria and goals they have to get and they have to make sure that the story comes out of this so that they did what they did make sense. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's where as an athlete you have, it's probably stressful because everyone wants to talk to you, but it's, you can just, you don't have these like check marks to check, check off. Yeah. Does that sound weird? Well, yeah, the whole nature of like the work that we've done in weird. media is yeah. weird, though. Uh, but as a, it's a life of privilege, it's kind of hilarious. Yeah, how long were you? How long were you a professional mountain biker for? I don't know if I ever really was. 
There's this doctor in town yeah. named Kathy Zaglinski. Okay. Who um, in town being Squamish, right? Sorry, we talked about that. Well, no, yeah. she was in Whistler. She ran okay. the Northlands Medical Clinic forever. She okay. helped me through some really, really shitty injuries. Um, and was also yeah, you've been an fucked athlete. up a bunch, right? Sorry. Yeah, and she <laughs> was like, she w- she had this thing where she would always be like, you can't call yourself a professional athlete unless you're making seventy grand a year, which I definitely never made. As so, I don't know. I made enough money to uh, basically put together a down payment on a house. So right. I don't know if that makes me a pro athlete, but oh, sorry. sorry. Well, I just I, it's for the for the listeners, not yes. for me. <laughs> Sorry, listeners. But yeah. yeah, I did it. I was oh, I was like heavy duty mid packer right. on the EWS, like right. on a good day. I was never like super awesome at it. I yeah. liked it though. Yeah, but the thing is, like the mid packer, like that sounds like a weird term. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's like <laughs> yeah. it's like a thing that like uh, this guy Jordy who works for for Fox, he has like joked with us in the past about how hard it is to be a high performance uh su- suspension tech at like right. world cups and deal with m- like the culture mid-packers. of mid packers who have this <laughs> culture of expectation sure uh even though they're not delivering results so that's sort of like they're like i'm not right he and that's where like the phrase came from but it wasn't until right now that you said it that it sounds kind of <laughs> fucked it up. does sound like that but <laughs> i think it's funny because like that, that thing is like the mid packers like but the, the point is you're trying to get beyond be the front packers or whatever the fuck you call them i don't know like yeah. you're trying to get past the mid pack and get to the front. Well, like the idea behind being a mid packer, I use it in the context of like just never being as like, fast as I probably should have right. been for what I was getting in terms of support. But like, you know, Jordy would use it in the context of like, well, maybe I guess the same thing. And that mid packers are like hard hustlers because they didn't right. want to be mid packers anymore. They wanted to be like the guys. That's what I mean. Yeah. So like, yeah. I think the number of the, the, the duration of your time in mid pack is probably it becomes a derogatory term. But if you're making your way yeah. through, you're like, yeah, you're just a mid-packer, but you're going to get there. But if you've been like, hey, you've been a mid-packer for 10 years, it's probably different, I guess. Well, I think when you're actually like living the life of a mid-packer, you don't admit that that's what you are. Yeah, but no. now that I'm nothing, we just, I'm yeah. okay just right. calling it as it is. Right. But I'm sure like the people who were like employed to help me were like, Jesus. But as a, you got to be but, faster uh, or chill out. Sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. But I think like it's still being mid-pack. I mean, you're only, how many... How many people are in, how many women are in the EWS? 20? Like in the top, like... When I was doing it, I think there would be like 30. Right. It's not that many. Right. But that's still, um, but it's not, it's not an open category. You have to qualify, right? Yeah. Depending on different events, I guess. Now, for sure you do. Yeah. At the time, it was like dependent on the venue. Right. So like, you know, one year we went to Chile and we raced on this island called Corral and... I feel like anybody could get in there because it was like so remote that right. they were like, please just come to our race. Yeah. It but is, now yeah. you have to qualify. Right. Because uh, when you first started, there wasn't, there couldn't have been that many, like put have been, the field must have been kind of small like 10 years ago. Well, it wasn't that long ago for starters, Proctor. Well, you're like, it was like, like my f- last race is like three years ago. Your last race, but your first race. My first EWS wasn't that long ago. Like I got hired without ever really proving that I would produce results. Oh, you just started racing? Kind of like I had raced at Crankworks and I had done well at Crankworks, but like on a downhill bike. Oh, okay. Um, and I had done a bunch of media stuff and I had relationships and, um, 
this woman, Elena Caldwell, who's now like in charge of Juliana bicycles at the mm. time, she was the boss at SRAM. She had this vision. She wanted to start an all women's enduro team. Right. And I had done like media stuff. I for think SRAM. I was around for that. Yeah. I think I yeah. did it. Okay. Well, yeah. cause I was like, as I was working for Arcteryx. Right. So like, as ah, you like hired me ago. as a contractor, yeah. I was like, well, I, you had the worst year of your life and about a Two months later, uh, I started in on the worst year of my life yeah. at the time. I've had worst years since then, yeah. but uh, and broke myself off, and then went into contract negotiations with like Julianne and Stram. You got you got worked a bunch, right? Shoulders and arms and everything. And yeah, well, I like had, I was broken off the year that Julianne and Stram hired me, which was fine. Like I, um, fell off my bike and broke my wrist. It was kind of whatever. Mellow. It, well, <laughs> comparatively speaking and then i like trained once julie on instagram hired me like trained so fucking hard i was like in the gym yeah i remember that yeah when i wasn't working for arcteryx i was training yeah and then at the first round in order i broke myself off in the second last stage that was your shoulder right yeah so yeah. like i i had this policy that day that i wouldn't look at my phone and i had you know kind of had a train wreck of a day we barely made our first um liaison i was with strand that day with yeah. katrina okay and uh we barely made our second stage and then like it was just it was a hard day and it always is right. in rotorua and i checked my phone before the final stage and my boyfriend at the time who's now my husband i like looked and he's like holy shit you're having a crazy good day oh, and damn. i didn't actually know <laughs> And so in the in that stage, I like made a huge mistake and did the classic like fuck. I gotta fix the mistake, uh, and I like made a huge scary error and ended up like instead of rolling like a ten foot roller, like a vertical roller, yeah. I like basically aired it oh, and right. like you know did the like bar twist head hit. So I I uh, dislocated my shoulder and separate like tore my um, UCL like skiers thumb. Yeah, you know because like the bar spun. Yeah. And I can't even remember what shoulder it is anymore, which is crazy, but <laughs> like dislocated this shoulder and like did my right thing and like hit my head. So, right. um, so eventually trackside, some man came and reduced my shoulder. It took like probably half an hour for him to come help me. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was brutal. And then um, at the hospital, I they gave me meds that I didn't recognize the name of because I was in New Zealand. And so I was sick that whole night and thought for sure like, Oh, they gave me gnarly nar narcotics. That's why I'm throwing up. Oh, all you night. have an allergy to co codeine, don't you? Yeah, and yeah. I thought that's why I was sick. And then I learned that it was paracetamol, which is Tylenol, and, oh, the, and it's, not, it's not good for not you. Not a narcotic, and I had a head injury. Like I was throwing up because I was sick. Oh uh, right, injury. okay. So anyway, wow. So that was like my basically the end of my career at the very first race. So I had <laughs> surgery, whatever. Right. Yeah, I'm okay now. Yeah, surgery helps, right? Yeah. You get back together. That's cool. Uh -huh. It's interesting. I, I just, I thought, I just thought for some reason, I, I now that we talk about it, it makes sense. But there was a point where I'm like, you've been biking racing forever. I just feel like my memory just adds on years to behind everything. So. Well, like I, I, I moved to Whistler because I had, I was like a snowboard coach, right? And worked with athletes in some cases who were older than me, mm -hmm. and moved to Whistler with the intention of like trying to be an athlete, hoping that being an athlete would turn that into a job for me. Right. And then it kind of did, did, right? Yeah. yeah. Weirdly. Yeah. It's like weird how it's all worked out now that I'm like pretty old and <laughs> not like, fast. Yeah. I like have cool jobs, which yeah. is crazy that that panned out. I think that's what, I think it's very rare that not rare, but 
a lot of athletes do probably get offered these positions where they work into them, but some like very, I think there's very few that can then handle it or manage it well because the athlete lifestyle is a bit different than being like in an office or being like kind of like managed. Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of hard to adapt, but you'd always been, you'd been, you'd always kind of had like a job the whole time you do this stuff. So you knew what it was always. about working and it was always kind of in the outside of like working at Fanatic or whatever you took on social media because you were recognized for doing it yourself and Whistler Blackham hired you to do it, right? So Yeah, which is such an annoying thing to be good at now that like social media is done to the world what it's done. <sighs> yeah, it's not exactly like my proudest thing. In but at life, the time but... that was the thing. That was like that was like the the newest that was what was happening, right? Yeah, I just could... saw like a window. I was I saw that there's this this piece of technology that you could use communication skills to get what you wanted. And I just started leveraging it because I grew up liking writing sentences. Basically I like telling stories and I just figured out that if I was like efficient on Facebook and I started this WordPress blog and I, you know, I had a friend help me write a, like build a WordPress site. It started, yeah, it just Tumblr from there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's funny. Do you think, do you think that you, do you, we said you're a storyteller. Do you like verbally telling stories? Or do you like writing them better? Like what's your medium of choice as far as storytelling? Would you rather tell a story or write it? Like, do you enjoy oh. the writing process? I actually, cause you write a lot. Yeah, yeah. Well now at Arcteryx, I, um, have a team, a pretty significant team of almost entirely women, which is totally coincidence. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, and when we hire on our team, we make sure we hire people who are writers first and foremost which is yeah. not super common i've learned because people can write but it's, it's not doesn't mean they're a writer right yeah and so we did this exercise where we were like what's the thing that you love doing in your work and what's the thing that you hate doing and for me i i hate writing press releases oh. i'm really bad at writing in the in the third person yeah i'm i only get i only can like quickly fire off a story if it's in the first person sure. and it's and it like is relatable, which is uh, not actually a great employment model. <laughs> like not every brand wants you to talk about yourself. No, because they want you to thing. they want you to hit like like stats and facts and put like they want you to hit check marks in that story you're writing to hit things, right? Well, like you think of Lisa Richardson, for example, who is just fucking. She brilliant. writes anything. She's just so talented, and yeah. you can get her to write. Well, I mean, she probably argued like not everything. We tend to give her stories that she cares about, right? But. She has this flavor and it and it's never in the in the first person. Right. She has this way of like conveying an emotion and what it means to the author and to the reader that I can't I can't understand that. Yeah, my friend Mike told me this Mike party said that you don't write for yourself, you write for the reader. Mm-hmm. And it's hard like even when like even video editors and stuff if you edit your own stuff, you sh- there's stuff you probably shouldn't put in the mo- in the video edit, but you put it in cuz you're not you're not like stepping back enough from it sometimes. Yeah. So when you're, I feel like in writing too, if you're writing things that are of your own experience, you tend to think of the details are more important than some of them are, or like mm-hmm. maybe not, not just saying you, but like in general. So it's when someone like Lisa can write and is aware of that, it's really, it's probably rare, I would guess, because most people need editors and then they, the editor discovers, Hey, you shouldn't, you need to get rid of this. Cause it's just like shit that it's like filler. It's, it's weird. Like I've been so fortunate in that. Well, first of all, like, I was raised by a teacher. My mom oh, yeah. realized when I was really young that I 
could write and was oh, cool. into it. And I actually texted her the other day because she's like learning how to text, which is kind of cute. But she, <laughs> I was, I said yeah. like, mom, remember when you sent me to the library in the middle of the summer, called it summer school and made me do a writing class with Martin Godfrey. So any Canadian kid who read a lot will recognize yeah. that name. I don't know if you do. It, I do, but I don't. I he didn't wrote read a science lot. fiction books. He okay. wrote, um, and I can't name a title right now, but I remember the way he looked and I remembered reading his books. Um, and I was like, mom, remember when you forced me to do that for a weekend? I was so <laughs> mad at you. Yeah. And she said, yeah, I just knew you knew how to write. And, um, I think there's a lot of value in having that skill. Like you're a really strong writer too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe. And I, I think it, you definitely get like a leg up in the world if you like to tell stories, but telling yeah. it the way Lisa does, there's so much nuance and doing it for a brand. I, it's beyond just that. It's this yeah. whole other level where I even find it really difficult. I think, well, there is that writing Not for like a brand, I even, but. but like writing for a brand is different because the brand's like, Hey, I need you to say these specific things. I need you to, I need, I need to get like, other than like a story, Hey, write a story in this person, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. But you have to keep that brand in mind and be, put it in a light. That's not like, it's not, there's not really the journalism behind it is a bit different and the editorialism behind it is a bit different, but you have to be able to get in that lane and provide interesting and, and a story that still does service what the, what the brand needs to some degree. And I find that with me, I have a fine, I have a hard time doing that. Yeah. It sounds very much like a press release when I do something like that. So if you give me a story to write about like whatever skier guy, it'll come across as a press release more than it would as just a story. Cause I, I don't have that. Uh, I don't have, I don't know how to balance that. I think it's like, I've been fortunate because my the voice that is just naturally my go-to yeah. works with the brands that I've worked with. So right. I don't write for Arc'teryx. Like, let's just make that really cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, I edit and whatever, yeah. do all the other stuff. But um, my voice works really well for Juliana Bicycles. They're they're generally pretty stoked when yeah. I put something out, and it's not hard. Right. Um, I wrote something for SRAM during Crankworks this year that it took me 15 minutes to do. Tyler was like, can you tell a story about... <laughs> Just like give me a local's perspective, and I wrote a story about Dark Crystal. Oh, cool. Um, I don't read stories, by the way. Just so I, yeah, I, read that I don't story. expect you to. And we did it in like a paper zine, so I think probably fifteen people like got the zine because they got the free swag at the oh, yeah. volcano, and then probably didn't read anything aside from like the jokes Miranda Miller wrote. But like, you know, that kind of stuff works. But I feel I'm like listening. Are you just playing with Gordon right now? This got weird. <laughs> Sometimes the camera doesn't stay on. It, but it, it stayed on this Yeah, it's time. on now. Yeah. Gord's awesome. He's showing he over here. best friend down there. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, I just, I think um, you're lucky if you have a voice that works for a brand. Yeah. Like Lisa's voice works for Arcteryx. We yeah. love working with her. Yeah. And and that doesn't mean she's the only person we worked with other writers. Um, I think a writer needs to be, uh, a writer needs to understand the humbleness of what they don't know when they write for brands. So like maybe Lisa isn't a climber, but she writes about climbing, let's say, right? Mm. As an example. I think if the writer is humble enough to know they don't know things, and it comes across in the story, but they have fact-checked and done their research, you don't have to be an expert on something, I don't think, to be able to write well about what it is. As long as you angle it from uh, whatever your true perspective is and not try to hide that perspective. Lisa's good at that. Yeah, and I think she actually did some, some work with Ange Percival, who's our senior photographer, talking, mm. and Jordan Manley actually, talking about like the kind of tone they wanted to use in the campaign that's uh, in market right now. And they really kind of like honed in on this notion of humility. Oh my God, don't die. No, we're good. Sorry. Go ahead. Sorry, Keep talking. Sorry, listeners. Proctor doesn't want to talk about humility. <laughs> yeah, shut up. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, I think that I feel like most readers can appreciate that the relatable thread mm -hmm. of like, I don't know everything, but here's my position. Yeah. She's really good on that. And in general, in general, as far as writers go and, and people who write and people who submit writings to you, you, you're asking athletes to write, you're asking writers to write. I mean, as an editor, whatever you call it, you got to see some shit that you're like, what the hell? I think it's like, like put a paragraph together. It's such a curse. Like it's, it's obviously a massive privilege to work in, in, I don't know. What do we work in? Marketing? Privilege. Well, yeah. Marketing. Content. Oh, I hate we work that in word. we work in bullshitting. Fucking content. We work in we're, we're the we work in convincing. We're yeah. To convince. But I like working in that world has forced this culture on me of taking all of this brilliant uh, content for granted. And I find it it's just like if it's submitted to me in an email, I just oh god. Like it's, it's cut and paste into the body. It's so tedious. And you just it's someone's hard work. It's someone's life work. It's someone's like dream. And, you know, I try to keep that in mind. Luckily, it's not my day to day anymore. Right. Um, and luck, especially lucky for them. <laughs> it's yeah. not my day to day anymore. But, um, yeah, you get to this point where like, if you catch like a hint of a tone or a mistake or something that doesn't fly, it's just like done. Right. I think of that in like videos that are sent to me yeah, oh or like, videos. you know, and especially the, you know, the scrolling nature of Instagram and Facebook. Yeah. I am seriously guilty of if someone submits something to me and they don't capture me in 10 seconds, which is almost, I'd say 98% of the time. That's, I'm not watching it. That's, but that's the whole, I get furious immediately when a video sucks. And I'm like, I don't want to watch it anymore. Like I'll get through things. I, I, I barely watch things anymore. I just like, I, for some reason, everything drives me nuts when I watch it. But I think, uh, yeah, you, but you have to be critical because if you're not, the, there's going to be critical consumers that are going to be like, yeah, this is what he's showing me this for. Or why, why am I seeing this? Because it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Or it makes sense, but it doesn't, it's not, especially with, our, with brands that are very quality brands, they've got to this level. You can't just provide like a, there's one thing about being authentic and like in the moment and these like things for sure. But if you try to get something polished out there and you try to act like it's supposed to be polished and it's not, like no one no one will watch it i mean human beings are so savvy and i think we all feel like we're being sold to all the time mm -hmm. now and yeah. even if you you know do what we did this year for the brand we put a lot of thought and time into the campaign we put out right now right. and and realize that people are like <laughs> like just bullshit like no one cared and it was and that's okay like we cared and it meant something to us and it meant something to jordan and Ange and lisa and, yeah. and if you ever get time to look at it you should yeah I, I it is about what's going on in the world and yeah it is an optimistic view of of what could happen to make the world a better place especially like we're we're talking right now what two days after the climate strike we right. didn't speak about that specifically but it's part of this conversation and it's just crazy how tired people are of all of it. Well, so there's no exact formula to get people's attention anymore. No, I, I've, I've been this way before. I feel like for a long time, uh, it's, we've, you advance so fast. It's hard to, it's hard to make new things. Yeah. Um, and, and, and by the time they're new, it's happened so slowly now. That's almost like everyone's, there's always these big shifts. Sometimes there's huge things that happen that make things new. But for the most part, you take these small incremental changes to make things newer. Everyone's already waiting for it to go faster. So we're already like, ah, fuck, I'm over this already. Yeah. But I think there's like, said it before it's like the art of entertainment is is it needs to be in everything mm. so like 
education, everything else. Like there's, there's a need to entertain whether you're being serious or funny or whatever it is, but it's knowing your audience. But I think it's like everyone's, you need to have content so much. It's impossible to have it awesome all the time. There's going to be duds all over the place. Cause but I th- we've like, there's been all these studies and it was in response to the Cambridge Analytica crazy shit that went on. Oh yeah. Shady. Yeah. But like there's proof that human beings are now engaging with these stories that are basically mirrors of themselves. And then like very clever, wealthy people who have access to data sets are, are leveraging that mm-hmm. to change, change you know, populations minds about things. Oh, and and they can direct people. It's like almost like they're, they're like mind molding you without even you knowing it. Well, and I think everybody does know it now. Like I am so guilty. I spend way too much time staring at my screen. I, I totally do. I always have. When I used to like race, I would, I would travel to Europe and my first priority would be getting a SIM card. And as soon as I'd have a SIM card and access to the internet, I would be like, okay, I'm going to be okay. That's fucked up. But I know that I am constantly giving, you know, information to marketers so that they can turn around and give me the mirror of myself Mm -hmm. to adjust my view of the world. Right. Um, when you, so I try to do a lot of research. Anyway. We're on Instagram. Do you, and you see an ad, do you go in and say, try to like hide ad? It depends. I do it all the time. I don't care what the ad is. I'm like, hide it. And I, there's not enough choices to be like, it's an inappropriate. you're just feeding more data to the machine. I know. I just now. don't care. I'm so mad all the time at Instagram. Yeah, Cause I, I don't do. know if that's how it works. But. <laughs> I, I don't know. But I, now I, I have, I use my, the screen, like the screen data. It shows your screen time yeah. counter blows my mind what i how long i'm on my phone oh for. it's so crazy i was like it's i'm only doing it for like maybe a week now and i'm like what the f-? i'm like really what's your average uh it was like six hours one Holy day shit, five hours doctor. one day i've had like an hour and i do now i'm like down like two hours but but like I, if i'm like six hours that's like almost the amount of time you spend sleeping so i guess oh huh, less probably are you ever really awake <laughs> <laughs> yeah no huh uh i it, it's it is because you know you wake up in the morning and then you're like, hey, you scroll through Instagram, let's say, or like, and I have my phone on the yellow screen so it doesn't burn my eye. My eyes are getting yeah, way sure. more sensitive as I get older. Uh, and I, but I'll be like, I might play solitaire for 20 minutes, right, on my phone, just like waiting on the bus or something like that. But that That's counts. Screen time. As, I know. Um, or I'll read, like, it tells you if it's educational or social media, whatever it is, all these things, right? Like it oh, does it, it break it, it down? Yeah, it breaks it down. Which who gives a shit? You're still on your phone. I don't want to sacrifice my screen time to learning what the data is about. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, exactly. But then I'm like, valuable screen but that's time. also in, in mixed in with how much I'm on my computer. Yeah. I, but it's the nature of our work. I remember sure. when I got an iPhone, it was right after I'd, you know, gotten some result at Crankworks. I was super proud about it. And I was like, Hey, this is now I'm going to make the change and I'm going to start leveraging these platforms mm. to really become a professional athlete. I don't yeah. think I was that articulate about it. And I was ski patrolling at the time, and I remember this sudden shift. The f- my first year or second year of ski patrolling, people didn't have iPhones, and like maybe one or two guys did. And right. You'd be in the bump, and like that one guy would be reading headlines to you. But then, when you refer to bump, so anybody knows, you're oh, talking so about like the, the the room where all the patrollers just sit and do nothing all day. Yeah, well, especially on Whistler, um, yeah, all black home patrollers. If there's any, uh, whatever, there, like that's what goes. They all on sit around just talking, just like in there, yeah. Yeah, and so like the one guy, I remember like being in the Harmony bump when the Japanese tsunami happened. Oh yeah, and you know the one guy from Japan who probably doesn't want his name mentioned on the show read the the headlines to us because he's like the only guy with an iPhone at the time. Oh. 
And then when I got one, it felt like everybody had one and we stopped talking to each other, which like was kind of nice yeah. on one hand because there's sort of a bunch of assholes. But on the <laughs> other hand, it was like, whoa, yeah. we don't even talk to each other. And it, I remember it definitely changed my time because there's a lot of downtime when you ski patrol. Mm-hmm. Um, it changed that time into this kind of like nervous need to collect information rather than just be around the people you're with. Yeah, it's kind of this. It is interesting. We talked. I was on the bus a couple nights ago. Um, I hit the bus a lot, and uh, I was. I put my phone in my pocket because um, I made music going. I put my phone in my pocket, and then I was like, I looked around the bus. Maybe ten people on the bus, and I, this story's been told, and this, this situation been told by a hundred times by other people. But I was like on the bus, and it was like everyone was on their cell phone. There was a couple having a domestic, clearly. And they weren't talking. Nice. They're sitting side by side. They weren't talking. They both got out. They went out different doors on the bus and then went oh. back to start talking to each other. Again. Like started walk back to each other again. And I was like, why would you just get out the same window? Anyway, same bus. But uh, I was only on, not on my phone and I, I felt awkward. I was like, I need, I need, I'm sitting here like st- not people think I'm just staring at them mm-hmm. or like, what's this idiot looking out the window at nothing because it's dark out and you can't see anything anyway. And I was like, just thinking, listening to music. And I'm like thinking about how awkward I felt. Because now I'm the guy who's the only one standing out and making, not being on the phone. I'm not trying to make a stand or say that I'm better better than anybody else, but I just tried to see, and I consciously made an effort. Yeah, felt weird, felt super weird to not be on my phone. And then, it, then I like, and then I kept thinking, ah, oh, screen time. I'm like, I'll play solitaire. Ah, oh, screen time. Like, but that's the same thing as like I remember landing in Geneva Airport, getting my SIM card, and going wherever I was in the world. I was probably in Italy, being like, yes, I've got my phone. I'm gonna be okay. That was sort of like my safe place, and it. It definitely weirdly like having a, a psychological like a, a psychological or emotional connection to home mm-hmm. got me through shitty times when I had uh, to be around. That so that was like, sense. but that's this weird connect I have now to it, which makes it's almost this like go to move I have, which justifies the you know average. I try to keep it three hours a day, and then say, oh, it's either about feeling safe when I'm traveling and, and like and emotionally safe. I don't mean. I'm never in danger, but, right. um, or it's my job. Like these are the lies I tell myself. Sure. That's everybody does. So I was, oh, I was telling us, talking, talking, talking about this the other day and, um, I don't know if I heard this before, but, uh, when you're like, say you're working, you're trying to, you're doing things you don't want to do or whatever. And you're trying to like say focus on work or something you just not into. And you're like, you try to, you just, you subconsciously justify these things you look at online. Like, Oh, if I read the news, I feel responsible reading the news, but it's actually me just distracting myself from what I'm supposed to do. Yeah, and you have you can trick yourself without even knowing it. We've been allowed to blindly trick ourselves to think that we're learning something when really we're just distracting ourselves from what we're trying to do. Like when I sit at my computer, I'm like, oh, I flipped too far left on my on my iPhone. Now I have those five news stories there, and I'm yeah. like, oh, but I think I'm like, oh, I'm learning something, but I, I'm really not. I'm reading about Trudeau and his you know, blackface stuff, whatever it is, and it's like same story over and over and over again. But don't you think that like there, I've my commitment to like my excessive screen time is that it has to come with the caveat of actually being informed. Sure. So but I wh- make sure that I like, if I'm going to be in the horrible black hole of Facebook being lied to, I'm going to couple that with time on the New York times site. And I like pay for this subscription. I read uh, the things and yeah. I have to, because oh, no, I I'm just not- think, I mean, if, I mean, if everybody was like me, <laughs> yeah. we'd all be in trouble <laughs> i don't know <laughs> yeah no all, all i'm saying is like i think it's we're we're easily tricked and think we're, we're, we're being productive like it's we're, oh yeah we're, yeah it's the like, idea yeah for sure because and those habits are being tracked yeah 
I mean, we live in a free country, though, where there are restrictions on how that data is being tracked and is supposed to be. There are places in the world where that's not the case. It's funny they call it a free country. Everything's super expensive. Nothing's really free. Yeah. But uh, I want to ask something about the screen time stuff. And you've you've traveled a bunch. And I remember you went to Africa, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then... uh, like, I know you're with a team of people, like you're with mm-hmm. a crew of photographers like that, and you talked about how it was a bit of a slog, uh, and you're mountain biking there. But when you talk about connection and phone, that kind of stuff, like, obviously you're in a different situation there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know what it's like. I don't know if they have, I mean, I'm assuming there's no, I'm assuming your phones were just pretty much useless for a while, or they, or there was Wi-Fi. I don't know. But in, when you're in those situations are, like, do you feel less connected or you need to you'd feel like anxious to be more connected because you're so far away yeah so like we, if andre charland and he won't listen to this podcast probably because he's so busy yeah. but let's say he did he would instantly give me a hard time for what we're about to talk about because cool. he always made fun of me for always making up stories about ethiopia which was a trip i did you just make you're making up stories you mean or no, you just like there was a time when i got back from that trip where he's like about oh ethiopia yeah, like, i heard about it a lot too always, but I, whatever yeah so um it was Maybe totally just jelly like should have gone there or something. Privileged white girl trip for to sure. The second, third world. It yeah. was it was for an ad campaign. It was super eye opening. But the intention of that trip, uh, we went with this uh, group called Secret Compass, and by group I mean the guy who owned the guiding outfit, right. uh, and this photographer Dan Milner who has an appetite for really fucked up mountain bike trips. If you right. Google him, he's he's done some crazy shit. He spent a bunch of time in. Iran this year doing trips and he's been in Afghanistan like with Shimano and stuff but our intention was to circumnavigate the um basically the UNESCO site world heritage site or whatever yeah of the Simeon Mountains okay and we were supposed to climb the highest the second highest peak in Africa which is called Ras Hashan it's like 4650 meters oh wow so our trip started at 3,300 meters and, you know, from there we're sleeping at elevation, obviously. Right. And yeah, no, phones didn't work. And yeah. I actually have photos from that trip, like selfies, because I just looked absolutely horrific. It was right. like, I was, I got sick. That's what happens when you go to the third world. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, went through some like <laughs> character building. Yeah, of course. Experiences with bathrooms and small children and. It's funny how it just makes yeah. you think about like what what we're so afraid of over here, you know, like what we're, what like things that bother us over here. It's like you don't have a choice; you just do, just whatever, just to get by. When I got back, it was actually right before that Rotorua race that I broke myself off at. Okay, and um, we had taken I think we were in eight days on that trip, and yeah, like eight really fucking hard days <laughs> of like yeah. car- literally carrying yeah. my bike on my back. I wasn't riding my right. bike, which was like. Ethically, I now have a pretty clear position on it. We don't have to talk about it right now. But sure. I think um, those trips where where wealthy people go to tell a travel story are becoming a thing of the past. And I think that's good. I think so, too. And, um, you know, when I came back from that trip, nothing seemed hard anymore. Right. So even I remember joking in Rotorua because Katrina kept making these points. She and I were like you always get put in buddies at EWS is basically. So you're always spending the day with almost the exact same person all day. Okay. And she and I are like, who, by the way, Strand's a freak. If I can keep up with her, I'm always yeah, like, she's a I'm machine good. I'm for okay. sure. Yeah. And that day was like my first EWS and, and we're rallying to make this connection. And she was like, this is the hardest day I've ever had racing out here. 
And part of me is like, I can keep up with Katrina. And then the other <laughs> half of me was like, when I hit a mud puddle here, I don't worry if it's full of human feces. So right. this is actually pretty chill. Like, yeah. and, and that perspective I got from that trip was huge. And yeah, not having a connection to the phone was shitty because I couldn't like reach out to Josh and say, okay, I'm alive. And eight yeah. days later I did. And the way I connected with him was I just sent him one of my most horrific selfies yeah. and then said nothing and just waited until he got it. It was yeah. probably in the middle of the night, but you know, that's funny. Um, we just mentioned that earlier, uh, about traveling and privilege and stuff like that stuff. And I've talked about it before and I, I, your perspective would be interesting to hear is like, um, we travel with privilege, uh, to other parts of the world. Um, mostly not, not to learn about the other cultures, to, to, to use whatever, like to, to surf or to ski or we, or to bike or whatever. And it's not so much to support that culture it's to go and experience our own time in there. Cause it sounds so beautiful and everything else. Like, Oh, it's cool to, to rough it or do these things that we have to, you know, you know, put the toilet paper in a bag and not flush or whatever else. And, but, and I know that we do in excess, but I'm curious if, if, if people become more aware when they travel, we can find a way to encourage more reason to be aware or more encourage people to be more uh, inquisitive when they travel that negative impact on our, on our environment. Does that travel help us make a better world because we are more aware or are we doing more impact by just like, like too many people, not, not enough people are going to go there to learn. They're just going to consume, you know, like you go to, you go to a third world country and then consume. That's like the whole, that's totally backwards to me. It seems crazy, but yeah. Do you think that the travel that we do that does impact the world helps us learn about the world and help us maybe try to fix it? I I mean, how many people actually get on a flight to Peru with the intention of like making that's what I mean, like it's better in five percent max, I would guess. I mean, I, I don't know for sure, but and I think there's also this whole conversation, which is so obvious, but you know, the whole carbon footprint sure. conversation. And yeah. I am definitely on no soapbox here. I work for an organization yeah. that asked me to travel a lot and mm -hmm. I travel more than I should yeah. in planes. Um, you know, we're, we do what we can in our own lives here, but I am part of industries that are incredibly destructive mm -hmm. to the environment. So it's like, I actually think the whole conversation about traveling to far off places for the, for the purpose of tourism it has like a really challenging thing. It's a I don't hard think one. there's an answer. I don't think that, I think our trip to Ethiopia, for example, was like all with the best intentions. Sure. Um, but in my profession now, if I was the decision maker, knowing what I know now, which is obviously an advantage on, on the folks who planned that trip to all those years ago, that no chance would I fund that. I would never. Yeah. Fund. It's weird because like we all, and it comes down to this content thing we talked about earlier too. And that lovely word is that people are bored of seeing what they see and they want to see something new all the time. The only way to find something new is to go somewhere different or extreme or, or do something new in an old spot, like try something new, unique. But like, I, I think as brands, you, you're seeking for these new stories and to expose people to new things. So they stay interested. And I, it's hard, <laughs> it's hard to, uh, to like, it's hard to, to stop and to slow down and not do these things as, 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 as like a business to, pro, to promote yourself or to promote the company. Well, I would say the upside to that is that, I mean, it's easy for me to be critical of the fact that I got sent like rich white girl to Africa yeah. to sell a helmet. But yeah. that was a, that was a privilege that I was sure. very fortunate to be included in that. And yeah. the insights I, I gained from that experience are I'll never get those right. again. 
Right. Well, hopefully I will and I'll learn from it. Yeah. But I think the upside is that in the outdoor industry, which is what I can actually speak to more than other industries, is there is an you basically can't won't most any brand outdoor brand right now that isn't spending time in the background looking inward and being like, what are we about? What are we going to do to make the world better? Mm. If you're not doing that as an outdoor brand, you won't have a business in a couple of years. And yeah, that's cool. That's, that's like, that's Smart. consumers saying like, go fuck yourselves. You all make the same thing. So what are you going to do to make the world better? Cause that's how I'm going to spend my money. Yeah. And luckily Arcteryx has like heard that call and we're doing an incredible amount of work in that space. I yeah. learn all the time. Um, it's not easy. It's super complicated. Patagonia is fucking good at it. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm just gonna sneeze. This is like a whole adventure of Proctor's bio biological patterns today. I'm gonna today. sneeze. That's all. Sorry. That's only sneezing and almost choking. <laughs> nothing else. I'm like farting everywhere or something like that. Um, and like, yeah, I guess the the brands that are behind and, and are doing that story, like I'm gonna go to Peru or I'm and I just want to get your attention. Let's all these cool bros went to wherever they go. We've all seen it a million yeah. times. Uh, cycling stuck in that pattern for sure. Uh, that's, I um, think hopefully sorry. they'll get out of it. Well, I think cycling in the grand scheme of things hasn't been like mountain biking hasn't been around as long as other brands are who've yeah. learned to evolve, right? So like you're still in a somewhat infancy in mountain biking on the grand scheme of things compared to skiing and snowboarding things like that and these other outdoor things like climbing and stuff. I mean, really, realistically, mountain biking's been around since like the mid '80s. I think it's like it's not even a it's not even the length of time the industry has existed for though it's just that cycling is so specific to its audience you know so there's nothing mainstream about it you're never going to see it's really rare to see a cycling story in a mainstream magazine so even when casey brown started making like stories in outside magazine that was that was hugely disruptive right. but so cycle like cycling consumers are all un like united by cycling so they don't care they're not they're not putting the pressure on the cycling industry that the outdoor consumer right. is because the outdoor consumer is every human in the world because yeah, they just true. want a gore-tex jacket to wear on their dog walks or or go bag peaks in the sea to sky but the cycling industry is like i want a chain that doesn't break or i want all the gears or i want Carbon whatever bike. and they're totally fixated still on taking their $10,000 bike on a $10,000 trip. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. So what I mean is like, it's it's still in that time of their life of mountain biking. That's biking is in that time. That's in, it's it's a time of its of the life cycle of cycling. Is that yeah. it, there's a hump it's going to get over because everything is still so new and people aren't bored of the of it yet. Because technology, like skiing technology is kind of slowed down a bit. Yeah. Snowboarding technology slowed down a bit. So now everyone's like, okay, what's next? Nothing's new now. Now we have to like be more aware of ourselves. Yeah. And I think where mountain biking can still, you know, it's still pushing forward in, in, in many ways that it hasn't had the chance to reflect on what it's doing to itself. I just don't think they've been, they're not under the pressure to do it. Uh, yeah. Because yeah, it's, well, it's not big enough. Yeah, for sure. Like well, you said. Well, there's like, there's one cycling brand that has actually got, well, maybe like a handful of cycling brands have gotten on like the dis diversity conversation. Right. Um, and like Aisha McGowan is the is the flag bearer of the diversity conversation. And that's crazy that there's one, like really, let's say five professional athletes who are really telling that story. Yeah. And there isn't pressure to do more of that. I yeah. mean, like when I started with the Juliana team, it was like, 
women cycling is like rich white girls, three rich white girls get put on a team. And that's suddenly a story about how the brand's doing. Uh, that was great. That was kind of a, and it's a, it's, it's not a strong story. Like it's a good story, but it's like, it's, it would seem like, it seemed like it was done. It was the right thing to do. And it totally was. It was. I don't want to take away yeah, no, from no, the I'm fact just... that it, 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 propping up women in the sport is still great. Yeah. It's fantastic for sure. Um, and super important. And yeah. there is a massive imbalance still that exists, Yeah. but I guess it's just cycling hasn't been put in the pressure cooker and it made to decide right. like made you know, forced to make those choices. And even like as an outdoor brand, it is, it's a big challenge to, to really look inwardly and say, are, are we in fact a diverse brand? Do we speak to people from all ethnicities? Are, are we inclusive? That that's hard. It so is. you don't have to, I can see why you don't. I think there's things too. When the companies get big enough, they get they, like, you can't fly under the radar anymore. Like, you know, like I say, like something like Jones soda versus Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola puts out an ad saying we're trying to use less water. And everyone's like, fuck you, shut up, get off Instagram, blah, blah. Yeah. And Jones soda is just like, they could be doing whatever they want. They could be like pumping chemicals back in the lake and they're too small. And no one's like, they haven't got that. They haven't been, they can't, they don't, they're not popular enough to be exposed yet. There's not enough reason to expose smaller companies because they don't get as much publication for exposing them. Does that make sense? Like it's like when Greenpeace came after Arcteryx because they used to ignore ignore Arcteryx for a while. Yeah. Arcteryx is the threshold. It becomes a bigger player and then Greenpeace can jump on them, right? Like and start shooting because they have more, there's more, it creates more hoopla and more controversy when you hit a bigger company with these. I, yeah. There, there isn't, I mean, it's, I, I don't know if that makes sense or not, but. I don't know if it does. I think it does, but I don't know if you think it does. <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't, we, we've been talking, it's kind of a bit depressing conversation a little bit. It just we've, got heavy and yeah, that, super like, heavy. obvious maybe. But, um, so. no, uh, you don't mountain bike as a professional anymore. And so how do you no. stay motivated to go, Gord, what's up? I'm going to get a rash. <laughs> don't sniff. Gordon, come Oh here. man, I'm going to have to get a rash. Down. Uh, <laughs> how do you stay, how do you stay motivated to go mountain biking? How do you spend all your life training so hard and how do you just go, fuck, I'm not doing this anymore? Yeah, I actually, um, the time I did trying to like, oh, sorry about the that's noise. Okay. That's that's Gord's, Gord's tail, tail hitting the table. No um, the time I did training with Monica Marks yeah. uh, at, changed my perspective of like fitness, you right. know. So um, if I'm if I'm on a work trip that requires me to be indoors without any outdoor activity, it's it's like a steady decline in mm -hmm. my ability to engage or actually even like have a positive outlook on any conversation. Right. And so there's, there's that layer of it. And then like living in Squamish and having this awesome situation I have with my work where I really am only required to be at the office a few days a week. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm able to prioritize riding my bike. So right. I'm not doing like the time I was doing when I was racing at all, but I still view my time on the bike similarly, which actually drives my husband insane right uh, like i still try if i'm going to do a big day i try to calculate like the amount of vertical climbing i'm going to get and Nerd. like try and set like a goal <laughs> right. that's the kind of shit that gets me excited yeah it's weird and boring that makes sense i mean it, it's a it's a formula that you use to to be an athlete and so if yeah. it worked then the formula to, to, it's like i mean it's just how you do it it's not like you've like it makes sense that you would keep doing it that way Totally. But I also was curious because I know people like sometimes you just like, you know, like maybe different, but you look like old sports football players or whoever it is, you know, they just, they fuck it. They just like, we're over it. And they just, they go through like so much. You just say, I'm not doing it. And you just get kind of 
out of shape and just like you know unmotivated to do that kind of stuff anymore. I think that's like one of my biggest fears though yeah yeah and I it's think it's a healthy fear to have for sure I, mean, I don't know if it's actually healthy my it, it, it's my sisters will say it's definitely like from our parents so my dad was always like lived in constant fear of gaining weight and that was always a conversation when we grew up yeah and always you know when he came home from work and and we were like watching tv after school we better like go act busy or he'd be like did you work out today have you done it uh, really oh, yeah, yeah totally. okay yeah and like we grew up ski racing kids privilege yeah and but too. the expectation was that we would be fit and i wasn't in high school at all and so i kind of uh, i don't know it's just like foundationally right what i care about more than i should whereas like josh uh, who I met because he worked for Santa Cruz bicycles when I got signed by Juliana. Yeah. Um, he's like the total opposite of me. He does not care what, like what his body looks like. He doesn't right. care if he's, he likes being fit, but not for Aesthetics. any other reason. Just, it's just so he can ride his bike longer. Yeah. That, that's what, right. that's what he cares about. He doesn't give a fuck what anyone thinks about him. That's good. That's healthy too. I mean, yeah, it's, not, it's yeah, awesome for sure. And, but it, he finds me exhausting because it's just like, <laughs> right. <laughs> like, yeah, it's kind of tedious. Like sometimes I do it for the wrong reason. Right. I, I'm, I just curious. Cause like, I, I mean, people track their rides and people track their health and stuff like that. And you know, most probably quite poorly do it, but I just wonder what the motivation is to keep doing that same you obviously don't you don't train at the same level you did before obviously but no. um i'm just curious of what the motivation is like how to how to stay motivated when the goal is to get results or that kind of stuff and now now the goal is to just enjoy it yeah i know i never set the goal of enjoying it because like that just wouldn't be honest because a lot of time you, I, mean, you don't I, enjoy I, it what do you mean i huh. It's really hard to explain. So, like, I often chase the stats of when I did race. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, so, that's like, like how you... that's my measure of success right, now. That's fair. And and I like let's just be clear. I was a mid packer, but mostly because I didn't like <laughs> racing. Like, yeah. I, I, right. I sucked at it, but I also hated it. Right. And it took me almost my whole life to realize, like, oh shit, I'm bad at this because I hate it. Right. And, okay. And so, what I realized I actually loved was training. Like, I love training. I loved knowing I had the thing to do and I did the thing and I saw the results in myself. Yeah. So I'm like a total Strava user, but I don't give, a, I don't really care if I win a stage or whatever. I like to look at my weekly stats. I do that too. Yeah. Like yeah, I'm, I'm into that. And if I had an 80 K week for a string of weeks, I'm stoked that yeah. that's what get that to right. me is fun, yeah. which is also not cool. No, but, but you know what's, I think, you know, what's cool is the tracking. Like if we, and then we come back to this app stuff and these social media apps where like the apps allow you to track and that track keeps you interested. Yeah. So like I use Runkeeper for mine because I don't want anybody to see how slow I am on Strava. So I don't use a, a mountain bike right. app. Yeah, yeah. So, and no one uses Runkeeper for, on, for bikes. Yeah. So. I also I, like to say like, if I, if I use Strava uh, and I use like, I'm really specific about the bikes I ride because I still have an arrangement with Juliana. Do you have... If something goes sideways, I can be like, oh, well, this bike had 500K on it before <laughs> whatever. Really? Uh-huh. So you'll like, you'll track your ride uh, against the bike you're on? Like, well, like, you'll be like, today I, I rode Rupert and I used this bike and t- I rode it Rupert next week and I used this bike. And you'll, will you? No, cross? not like that. Oh. Like, if I you don't have had. have like Excel sheets and stuff on this shit. No, no. But if I had some, like, a mechanical failure of some kind, I could say that that happened at like the 500th kilometer. Oh. You know. Oh, you mean to terrain. give the feedback to Juliana? Yeah. If, oh. if it ever came down oh, to okay, it. Okay. Cool. I've never really asked for it, but. Right. Okay. That makes sense then. Do you do anything else 
Do you like, you don't, you just bike, right? No, I ski tour in the winter. Right. But you don't like, you don't run or anything, do you? No, I run. You do? This, this you like past running? winter, I had to get into running so that, because ski touring wasn't a great way to come back to the bike season. Oh, right. So I like hate, March and April are really shitty for me because yeah. it's, it, it's just the hardest time in the bike season because you feel junky and it's just like, it's We well, just came out of winter, you haven't biked. And, yeah. Yeah. So this year I like made a point of, trying to run and i'm not a runner running is so i've found it so it makes biking so much easier yeah like it's crazy it's like it, it changes, running sucks it changed the early season on my bike this year yeah. because i would and especially because i was still living in whistler at the time it is impossible to do a run in whistler that doesn't involve like anaerobic efforts oh man it's yeah. so hilly struggling for sure yeah and so that made a huge difference in coming yeah. back on the bike so I, yeah i run but like not well and yeah not with people and no. not ever to be seen running. Ugh. No, I run. I usually <laughs> run on my own. So I I realize though, like, uh, you know, you, if you, if I didn't bike for two weeks and I ran every day for two weeks, like even five kilometers every day for two weeks, yeah. and I got back on my bike, it'd be a, a markedly different uh, biking experience yeah. as far as like biking uphill and stuff like that. Totally, it's that it's, it's. But you have to make sure you're doing it in hilly zones. If you're like doing zone flat. two heart rate runs, it's yeah, you might as well skip it. Yeah, I don't know my heart rate. Sometimes what I. I get scared sometimes biking because my heart rate sometimes will like be like incredibly out of control fast. Mm. And I'm like, but I'm not breathing heavy. And I'm like, heart rates, like my breath and my heart rate don't match. And I'm like, what's happening here? Why is my heart going so fast? Like it's like redlining, but I'm not breathing hard. It seems weird. I don't know if I'm dying slowly out weird. there in the forest or whatever that, but like it seems really strange. There's gotta be a doctor out there that can answer that question. Yeah. I don't know. I I'm can't. not sure. Do you, do you, uh, do you see a nutritionist? You did when you biked, right? Uh, so when I was training with Monica, I had this like whole thing. I think I remember you, I used to watch you eat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you used, you'd, I used to watch you <laughs> At work. You'd be like, yeah, I brought this today. I'm like, cool. It looks like you made it at home and I'm going to go get a snack on the street. <laughs> well, like the biggest drama <laughs> I had or at the time, and this is probably like a, like a way too personal detail, but maybe uh. it's like a dad issue. But I uh. always was like, felt like I was too big to be a good endurance athlete. Okay. I felt like I was too heavy. And I think at the beginning of one of my seasons racing full time, she was like, let's try and lose some weight. So we got into this shitty game of like, I took pictures of everything I ate. Right. I like didn't drink, which is so boring. I remember that. Yeah. And like, and I would do weigh-ins every week and like skin fold tests, which for someone who's like kind of insecure about their body, it's which m most women can relate to. It's yeah. like, fuck, shoot me. Yeah. And I did it and like, I really didn't see notable changes. And, and once you're like at a threshold weight and at a certain fitness, your body is, well, my body was just like, no, you're good. I'm yeah. just going to, we're not going to change. You're going to hang out in the one forties and that's just going to be what you weigh. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until I quit racing and would like, was working at my job so much and would yeah. like skip meals by accident and still crack out like big vertical days that yeah. I would like notably lose weight in the summer and then own, like, uh, you know, do the Peter yeah. Matthews thing, like, and then gain in the winter. I do the same thing. Summer. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So I did that. It sucked. It was not a happy place. It just me. seems like your body has a natural rhythm and it needs to be in that zone. Yeah. And when you at different levels, maybe if you weren't a mid packer and you were a front <laughs> packer, maybe that would be like, there'd be a different motivation to just like really like, strictly go for it and be annoying about it yeah you know, i think that's kind of hard thing and it, but it's like it, it, that, it comes down to how much are you really trying to where you're trying to get to and well, it I seemed like in mountain biking for you you're just like i i race but i have a job and i know that mountain biking is not my 
my future as far as racing goes. So you, there must've been like a subconscious, like I'm going to try this and enjoy it, but I'm not, or, or try it and like focus on it, but I'm not going to, you wouldn't let yourself just get to the point where it's like militant about it all. Cause you already knew that there was like future beyond. Well, biking. I think like the part of what went so wrong for me when I was racing was that I had, I you had full-time jobs, but I never gave myself that pass. Like I still would show up to races expecting a, mm. a top 10 result That's out of good, myself, though. even though I'd never proven that sure. besides like a couple of top 10 stage results, yeah. which is cool. But I think like I, I never gave myself the pass that I had a job. Like it was like, I still was like, I'm the most privileged athlete here. Cause at the time Kelly Anka and I were the only athletes really properly being paid, which we right. weren't like, I couldn't pay rent on what I was getting paid. Sure. But I felt in like, obligated to to produce and i never produced a result that i was proud of and so i was like in the cycle of expecting it never delivering being disappointed and like just beating the shit out of myself over it and and never giving myself the pass of like i'm the only one here who has a full-time job right. i'm whatever i'm the oldest one here or whatever it was right and I think at the end of the day, all of the effort I put into racing, because it was significant, like I, you know, Monica would tell you the amount of time we spent trying to right size my gap in background as an endurance athlete or um, trying to like catch up with the rest of the field is basically what I was doing. Yeah. I just wasn't mentally strong. That's a tough thing to do. And especially like, you you know, if you start, start early in your life and you have a more like you get more of a run at it when you're younger and you start younger and you go into it. It's probably easier to catch that, that kind of momentum. But if you're getting into mountain biking, you know, you know, at a 30 or whatever it was. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a different thing, right? You're training your body to be something that you, everybody's been doing for the, I mean, mountain biking was pretty, still pretty fresh, but yeah. yeah, you weren't jumping into it after 10 years of experience. You're just jumping into it, just like training and racing right away. Well, and like, a good comparison now is like, so the woman who just won every single race this year and won the overall, yeah. her name's Isabeau. She's brilliant. Yeah. She's been doing it since she was 16. Yeah. And right. like only doing enduro. Yeah. And she's French. So she was pretty much born <laughs> better right. at sport than most people. Right. And, and is a wonderful human being and deserves everything she's achieved. But, mm -hmm. um, by comparison, I showed up, I was like 34, my first race. Mm. And I, I, at least when I was racing EWSs, that was like, remember ski cross in 2010? Yeah. Ski cross in 2010 is not what ski cross is now. No. You know, like the skill gap was significant. And sure. that's basically when I started racing EWS, the skill gap was huge. Yeah. So you had like Tracy Mosley and Carolyn Chosson, who's like the first Crushing. ever BMX Olympic gold medalist. She yeah. has like a, an, a hero and so is Tracy. Yeah. And then you had like me. Right. And I could still produce a top ten result. I would not be able to do that now. Yeah. It's the field has changed. And like the people who are producing are have been since they were fifteen. Yeah. It's like I was watching uh Vans skate uh like ball tour or whatever, like skate street skating. And um the girl who won that's eleven years old. And yeah. she's competing against people like twenty. Yeah. You know, whatever age, you know, eleven years old. Yeah. And I was like uh, and I think even like the, in the, in the men's, like, they're like, you know, 15, whatever, younger, 13, some of them are pretty young. And I was like, there's a different, there's a strength level you need to, I thought you needed to get at to, to be, you know, at a level in sport, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, 
But then I watch these these kids and I'm like, you know, even if you started when you were one, one years old, you're only 11. So how are you getting so good at these things so fast? And how are your muscles even be able to support these like things you're doing? It is crazy how the progression and how, how fast things move and how like uh, there used to be that huge gap. There'd be like the great people and then the people that are behind them. Now it's like people who like the 25 year old who was the best last year is now losing to somebody who's 11 or 15, whatever it is. And it's crazy. And, and in any sport, a lot of sports really, right? Like, well, I think that's going to be. Well, it's sort of how I feel in my work, too. I just don't get it. I'm like, how come? I'm like, wait There's a minute. There's always kids that are going to come take your place. Yeah, but I'm like, how? I'm, I, I don't, I have a hard time understanding it just in general. I'm like, how does this, how do these people get to the point of, how can somebody who's like 25, how could they just not win? You have, you have like almost adult strength. You have like, a, you've been doing it for much longer. How do you, like it's strange to me. I don't know. You have these anomalies back in the day. I was like Sean White and people who are like, you know, that came out of kind of like these, these childhood, um, phenoms and i i just i don't know it seems like so much more um like it happens all the time now yeah well i think it's just like as but you're there are 11 or 12 i just don't I, it's just it's like it, the strength thing to me just it, it's, it's but it's strength weight strength to weight ratio yeah i guess yeah. so if you so weigh like 80 pounds and you weigh 80 pounds like i was just joking with jen ashton like hoji's you know jen yeah um Last night, she introduced me to one of their kids, uh, one of the kids she coaches at the Spearhead Huts thing. Yeah. And she was like, oh, this kid's so talented and she's, she's whatever. And she also does the high school bike program, I guess. Okay. So Katrina used to run that program and I would coach for it. And it was yeah. like, I remember the days of the week. It was like every Wednesday, let's say. Sure. And I would pull up to the Whistler High School and we'd divvy the 30 kids up into three or four groups. And sometimes I would get Finn Isles' group. Right. Finn Isles. Is legit, yeah. And, you know, like I was probably in okay shape at the time I was racing. Sure. And Finn was like tiny. He, he was like 12. Been, yeah, maybe 12 at the time. Yeah, it would have been five years ago. Yeah. Well, no, he's not 17 he's, now. He's, he's 19 or 20 now. He's 20 now. So like, let's say he's seven years sure, old. He's yeah. little yeah. anyway. Yeah. Um, and I remember like, because it wasn't just Finn. It was like Georgia, who is now like a weapon on a bike. Right. She's grown up. All these kids who are like pretty much sure. professional athletes, they would get put in my group. And then I would have to like find someone else in the group, like a really weak kid in the class and be like, Johnny you're with me. And right. Johnny would be like, I don't want to be with you. And I'd be like, I need you. Because without Johnny, I couldn't keep up with those kids. Right. And I could, it could always be about right. Johnny, but it was really fundamentally about me. And right. like Finn, when he was a tiny <laughs> kid, he w could have been a professional cross-country athlete. Yeah. He's like tiny. And mm -hmm. so was, the strength weight thing was real. Well, I was up biking a few days ago with um, a friend of mine and her son. And uh, he's like 13, I guess. And we did Lord of the Squirrels. Uh, and I was following him down and even his line choice, everything he was doing, it was, I was like, wow, I was, I was like, I'm going to follow this kid because I'm going to learn something here. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not, a, I'm, I don't have a history of mountain biking that's that deep, but, um, he's 13. So he's been mountain biking almost longer than I have. Yeah. <laughs> but obviously if it was like th two or three or whatever it is, I don't know, not that long, but, uh, I was just watching him again. This kid's like, he's not a professional mountain biker, but it, I just watched like, man, even like they're just shown the skills at a time where they can develop them. Yeah. You know, which is like so much, I guess, a huge advance, a huge advantage. Well, and I think it's just the idea of when you're that age, that stage of um, human development. Yeah. You pick up things. And and the sports have quickly. been, and the sports yeah. have been picked apart. And now there's the techniques that we didn't know about 20 years ago. Sure. So you're learning these, here's, here's the, here's how, here's how the skill works now. So you yeah. can teach a five-year-old kid that. Whereas before, when say we were five, we were just trying to figure out what the skills were because there was no, yeah. there's no book. 
to totally. tell us what the schools are. Yeah. I don't know. Advancement's crazy. I don't, I don't, I don't think I actually, I'm getting better at mountain biking now that I'm 40. Well, yeah. I mean, but not everybody uh, has your story though. No, but just, just in general, not about the story. It's more like, like if you hadn't smashed your face and broken your neck. You might be, re- you might've been really good four years ago. Like if that day hadn't happened. Sure. Yeah. But I mean, I was like shit before, better. but I just think it's more like, uh, yeah, I've noticed just the continuation of doing it over and over again and time on it. Yeah. You know, given the kid five years to do that when he's 10 to 15 with yeah. the huge development years, they're going to explode and get. Well, rid- I think that's like, that's what gets industry so pumped. Yeah. Is right. that like those are the people who are going to be innovators. What's, what's really cool right now is that it's not isolated to sport. Yeah. So you have this movement happening in the world where kids like Greta are crossing the ocean in boat and yeah. like mobilizing 5 million people on a Friday. Yeah. Um, and it's almost like a similar thing is yeah. like that perspective of that age set is so unique to the rest of the world that mm-hmm. it is actually offering something the same way like an athlete would, I think yeah. maybe that's a stretch, but well, I just think that people are no longer being um, held back by age. If you have a thought of something and if you're like, if you feel strongly about something that you can move forward with it. And like social media has helped us get a word out. You can have an impact if you're kind of like Greta, if she has an impact, mm-hmm. you know, just by sitting in front of that building one day with a sign yeah, and like, you know, and then all of a sudden now, you know, I think there's, people are looking for saviors. People are looking for these inspirational things. And sometimes, um, when you're not set in your ways and you're a young kid and you're just driven by passion and almost an ignorance that you're not, you're not aware of it, it provides a better, uh, I guess, um, symbol of hope or symbol of something. Cause it's like this person's, you know, so innocent. They haven't been able to make any poor choice or whatever. And they're just like, Hey, I want to fix things. Yeah. I think it's interesting that. It, it, I didn't really think about it trans uh, going from sport into just a regular life. I think it's just point. the nature of youth, right? right? Like, especially as the world is changing so fast. But you know, seeing seeing an 11 year old skateboarder win uh, can inspire someone who's an 11 year old environmentalist. Like, I can, if they're doing yeah. that, I can do what I do want to do over here too. It's For pretty sure. cool. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's been like an hour, probably. Wow. Yeah, maybe a little bit longer. Is that why Gord's acting so strange? Gord wants to go outside. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I th- I think um, we can probably wrap it up. It's been great chatting. We don't use okay. it's you don't really like we used to drive back and forth to Vancouver a lot together. We, we had these conversations. Sure, you mostly got mad that the CBC say, played the same stories three times a day. Oh, it's f- infuriating, <laughs> man. I still do it now. It's crazy. Um, but I I just think you don't get these chances. Even like good friends, you know, you don't get these chances to sit and chat. And you do, but you don't like here you kind of these force where you're trying to think of things to talk about for me anyway. So like, I'm trying to feed you things to talk about that. I know about you. We probably wouldn't sit and talk about like our feelings on going to Ethiopia, our feelings on like, you no. know, these kids that are 11 years old or whatever, doing these things, but it's cool to get perspective from a, from a friend that you just usually, you know, you're always just talking about like more day to day stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's cool. Thanks for coming to my house. Yeah. I appreciate the, uh, I appreciate the time and your <laughs> hospitality. And I appreciate, uh, I took an allergy pill, so I wouldn't sneeze. So I, I was he able to pet Gord. I didn't even sneeze. I, I fought it off. Oh yeah, he's yeah. he's got his eyes on you. He's yeah. ready to come hey, fuck your shit up right cool. now. Cool. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks, Sarah. It's great. Thanks, Proctor. Um, I'll talk to you in like two minutes after <laughs> I turn this off. <laughs>